Will Baker, president of the Chesapeake Bay Foundation, our continuing podcast series, Turning the Tide, Saving the Chesapeake Bay. I'm joined by Bill Goldsboro, senior fisheries scientist at CBF. Bill started just a few years after I did in 1978, if you can believe that. And he has the good sense to be retiring at the end of this month, leaving me here all by myself to survive somehow. Bill, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Will. Good to talk to you. Bill, um, Bill started at CBF, as I said, in 1978. He went out almost as a missionary to Smith Island. The first time CBF had launched an environmental education program on one of the Bay's inhabited islands. And um, it was a little rough sledding in the beginning there, Bill. Yeah, it sure was. Um, turned out, we learned later, uh, I had all the characteristics of a classic game warden. <laughs> I had a mustache, <laughs> I had binoculars, and I had army surplus clothing. <laughs> sure thing, and, I was a game warden. And they had had an undercover game warden living in their community and a major bust a few years before. That's right. That's right. And they had one time, actually not that one, but even earlier, they had had a game warden pose as a minister. Ah. So they suspect everybody. They suspect everyone. Within uh, a few months, I mean, I don't think that's exaggerating, you'd made friends uh, that you still have today, lifelong friends. Absolutely. Smith Islanders or uh, uh, Smith Islanders and Tangier Islanders, the two major inhabited islands in the bay, are uh, are unique beyond a description. Uh, so if anyone uh, hasn't been there and wants to go there, they should. Uh, so you you ran you started the environmental education program at Smith, ran it for a few years, turned it over to your successor, and went back to the University of Maryland to get your graduate degree in fisheries management. Right. Uh, well, the degree was a little broader than that. It was in estuarine ecology, so Chesapeake Bay ecology, basically. Okay. But fisheries has been your interest, and you came back to CBF uh, and have been here as our fisheries scientist ever since. Ever since I convinced you to let me do it, yeah. That's right. That's right. It was, it was a, a, a fair price you had to pay, but I was willing to accept it. So one of the things, Bill, and I'd, I'd, I'd love you to talk just briefly about this, but put it into context of the, the theory behind managing fisheries, whether they be oysters, crabs, striped bass, what we call rockfish or, or, or anything. One of the first issues you really tackled was the declining population of rockfish, striped bass in the Chesapeake Bay. And give us a little history of that and how it resolved itself. Well, uh, sure. Um, Fishery science was uh, not at all as uh, highly developed like it is today, but there were all kinds of indications that rockfish population was declining. Uh, there had been poor recruitment or reproduction all through the 70s. Um, various studies were raising concerns, but <clears throat> uh, the management um, of that fishery at the time was done by individual state. So a dozen different states from Maine and North Carolina all managing a fishery on the same stock, the migratory fish spawned here in the Chesapeake that move up and down the coast, uh, doing it all according to their own plans, individual plans, and that's no, no way to manage a stock. You need to have consistency throughout its range. Okay, now I'm going to interrupt with one fact you need to say. 
How much of that fishery at that time was born in the Chesapeake Bay, the Maine to North Carolina fishery? So uh, along the, the whole Maine, our whole uh, East Coast, uh, at that time, the estimate was that 90% of the catch Extraordinary. Were, were of Chesapeake origin. Yeah, so the Chesapeake is, is clearly the dominant spawning and nursery ground for a number of species uh, on the East Coast. So, sorry to interrupt. Back to the story. So, well, each of a, the states managing separately. Yeah, and, and there was this interstate, still is, this Interstate Fisheries Commission, the Atlantic States Marine Fisheries Commission. That's all the states from Maine to Florida. It uh, was formed in the 40s. So, it was there. It was around. But it was advisory. Uh, the pattern was the states would get together at those meetings and they would talk about what needed to happen. Then they'd go home and the individual politics of the state would take over and, and there was no consistency, no, no unified plan that got implemented across the board. Uh, so um, <clears throat> with uh, a lot of people getting concerned, and I have to say some of the sport fishing community right out front on this, uh, especially here in Maryland, the Maryland Saltwater Sport Fishermen Association actually organized a march on the state house in 1983. 1983. 83, um, yeah. Sport marching on the state house because of their concern for low rockfish numbers. That's right. That's right. Uh, so um, Congress was agitated, of course. So you had the same concern up and down the coast. Uh, and there were a lot of proposals for what we might do about it. And the one that ended up sticking is one that uh, Congressman Jerry Studs from Massachusetts sponsored, we call it the Studs Act, uh, or the Atlantic Striped Bass Conservation Act that was passed in the fall of 84. And uh, uh, elegant in its simplicity, one might say, it was, uh, it was a mechanism under which the state's party to an interstate management plan from that commission, the ASMFC, uh, would have to comply with that plan or face a federal moratorium in their waters. Uh, and there was some funding to help get the plan going. So there was a carrot and a stick there. But the main thing was um, a, uh, a requirement that all the states in the range work together on a single plan. Uh, and lo and behold, that worked. Uh, I started going to those meetings in 84, been going to them ever since, and, and I saw it work. I saw how it forced them around the table, forced them to adopt uh, a unified recovery plan. Uh, it was a plan that was designed around protecting the one decent year class or, or year's spawn of, of rockfish that we had at the time. That was the 82 year class. Uh, and at that time, it was what we would call an average even now, it's, it's what we would say is below average, but it was, it was the best one they'd seen in, in several years. So the strategy was, let's protect the 82-year class until uh, the females mature enough to spawn at least once, and that would take them up to you know, age six or seven or something. So um, that played out all through the 80s, uh, and the state stuck to it. Some of them closed their fishery entirely. Maryland oh. did, for example. Yeah, let's come, let's come back to that. So okay, you're we'll come a, back to that, yeah. Getting a little ahead. So with 90% of the fish being born in the Chesapeake, Maryland and Virginia were critical in terms of needing to take a leadership position. That's right. And Maryland did what? When? So Maryland, Maryland actually stepped up first unilaterally and declared a moratorium in September of 1984. September 11th, as I September recall. September 11th, exactly. <laughs> uh, and what that came to mean. Um, but um, the Studs Act passed Congress a month later. So Maryland wasn't compelled to do that by anything. Maryland did it on its own. And I'll credit Dr. Tory Brown for that. 
Perhaps. Secretary of Natural Resources. Yeah, exactly. And uh, his boss, the governor, Harry Hughes. That's correct. Um, they had to go out on a big limb. They declared uh, the species in need of conservation, which allowed them to uh, take action uh, through regulation and not have to go through the General Assembly, where it would have mired down. So they found a way to break the, de the deadlock and get something done. And that was really a catalyst. That may have been a catalyst for Congress, too, to actually get, get it together and pass a bill, because there were a number of competing bills. And while we're giving credit, we ought to give credit to Dr. Tory Brown's um, a policy assistant, Verna Harrison. Some of our listeners may know Verna, still very active on Bay issues. Absolutely. Who first became convinced that a moratorium was needed, talked to her boss, who talked to his boss, and that happened. And then Virginia followed through with a partial moratorium. So Virginia did actually declare a moratorium, but not until, not until 1989, the last year of the, of the uh, period of uh, severe cutbacks along Had the coast. They'd been ratcheting down along yeah, that time? Yeah, so what most of the states along the coast did was they, they increased the, their minimum size uh, annually or even twice a year to stay ahead of the growth of the 82-year class, to keep, keep the fishing pressure off that year class they were trying to protect. Now, <clears throat> for my simplistic mind, fisheries management is all about knowing how many fish are born and not taking any more fish or shellfish in a given year than can be replaced. You do more, you'll have less fish in the body of water. You take less, you're going to start to build up some stock. So while I know that's overly simplistic, that's basically the concept behind fisheries management. Well, yeah, that in, in a nutshell. Um, you, you, Each the, one of those assessments is very difficult. Well, and, and that leaves open the question of what size of population you want to maintain it at. Right, right. Uh, and there are different management objectives you might have. For example, a commercial fishery, they prefer what's called maximum sustainable yield, if, <laughs> if you want a real piece of jargon there. But what that is, is that, that really maintains a population that's somewhere around 40%. Uh, and, and that's the size, in theory, uh, at which, the size of population, at which it does its maximum production on, on average from year to year, maximum spawning output, because it's trying to maintain itself. So if right? you had 100 fish in a body of water, just to make it simple, the maximum sustainable yield would say we can take 60 and leave 40? Well, that's not exactly it. No, it's <laughs> still like you said classic. initially that, that you take one for every one produced, um, but but you're maintaining the population at about 40. And, and and at that point, it's producing the most it will produce in theory. See, so you're able to take the most on an ongoing basis and still keep it in one place. But that's only the commercial outlook on right. this. The recreational sector of the fishery uh, is not optimized by taking that approach because recreational fishermen are a lot less efficient. They're not as good at catching fish as our watermen are. Right. Uh, and they're out there for recreation and pleasure and in many cases catch and release. But, but so what they need to, to optimize their fishing is more fish in the water. 40% doesn't cut it. They'd rather have higher abundance and a greater abundance of big old fish Commercial guys don't really want the big old fish. They want the marketable sizes, the, be, the you know, for the highest dollar per pound. Uh, so there's a built-in tension right there that still plays out uh, to this day between a commercial and a recreational is, is how we manage with the recreational guys wanting more fish left in the water. 
Okay, so now when Maryland and Virginia started ratcheting down, Maryland total closure, Virginia more and more of a closure, um, you had the idea, as I recall, that if this fishery were ever reopened, if it did rebuild itself to a point where it could be reopened, we wanted, we as a society should make sure we didn't make the same mistake again. And as I recall, you brought together the commercial fishing leaders, the sport fishermen leaders, and the third category, the charter boat captain leaders, leadership, to work together to try to build some consensus on how to operate if and when the fishery was reopened. That was the first time I think something like that had ever happened. Maybe. I, I don't know about that part of it, but that is what we did. Uh, we uh, rented back room of a bar down on City Dock <laughs> in Annapolis. And, uh, you know, these guys came together, probably, uh, you know, seven or eight of us at a time usually. And uh, a number of times over a period of a year or so, talking around the, uh, uh, talking about the options and uh, shared interests, common ground, difference of opinion, what whatnot, trying to create some uh, mutual understanding and respect and and find that common ground. Well, fast forwarding, the fishery did recover. It was reopened. It has made national, if not international, headlines. Some people will say it's not as healthy as it used to be. Others will say it's even better. There's a, you know, with fishermen, there's always a wide range of opinions. But the scientists have really declared it a great success story, and the work you and the others did to see that overfishing did not immediately or ultimately reoccur has been pretty well sustained. Yeah, yeah, that, that's right. Say, um, where are we today in terms of striped bass rockfish here and up and down the coast? So... Um, uh, the striped bass recovery was a landmark thing, no doubt about it. It was probably the first time that we had actually applied some form of science to management and brought back a stock that was on the brink of collapse. Uh, so that was really noteworthy. Uh, that all the states worked together to do it was equally noteworthy. Um, and so since then, we have managed this stock through, or this population, better word, uh, through the Atlantic States Marine Fisheries Commission, a coastwide management plan, um, using science as a guide. Uh, and the way they do it now and have been for a number of years is using what they call reference points. So there's a target level for the population and a target level of fishing mortality, the amount of fishing you can do, the rate of catch in a given year that they, they think uh, is conservative enough that it, it'll keep the population around that target. So those two are kind of tied. And then there's what they call a threshold level for both, too. You know, you don't want the population dropping below this minimum point or it's, it's what's called overfished. That's when the red flags will go up. Exactly. And for the fishing rate, the, the threshold is higher because you don't want to be overfishing above a certain level. So uh, that gives you a little room to maneuver in around that target because it's never going to be exactly on it. It's always going to vary a little bit from year to year. Uh, and, and that's where we are. But... Um, Right now, and then for the last couple of years, we've had a little bit of a hiccup because we were going great guns in the late 90s and into the 2000s, so a wonderful fishery. We had phenomenal uh, reproduction, 93, 96, 01. There were a number of really good year classes there, and it was kind of unprecedented, actually. The, the average level for the recruitment I was talking about earlier, the 82-year class, that, that went up dramatically. 
Um, but then we, and we geared up for that. You can see it in the data, especially the recreational fishery coastwide just started, the catches went up and up and up and up as the abundance of fish did. You know, that's what you would expect. Commercial guys that were held at a quota. So they were still at, at an even level that whole time, as they will point out. <laughs> <laughs> um, but when we stopped getting good year classes for a period of time there, six or eight years in the 2000s, um, we kept fishing at that high rate, and as a result, the, uh, the stock, the population started declining, and it declined for about a 10-year period up until uh, a few years ago. Uh, and now, and, and where, it's, where it got to is right down to that threshold level, uh, and that worried a lot of people. And there are people still worried, uh, people that are really conservative, though, about striped bass, because the threshold level itself was the level of recovery. That's where we wanted to get to. In 1995. And now we're worried it's come down to that. Yes, yeah. exactly. Because we set a record, I think, with how high it did get in around 03. I think that was probably the peak. Um, so the, the Atlantic States Marine Fisheries Commission has actually had to cut back on catches coastwide, 25% coastwide, in order to sort of deflect that trajectory back upward toward the target. That's okay. what they're trying to do. Um, some people uh, feel like it wasn't enough. Some people feel like it was too much. It all depends on your frame of reference. You know, if you're a commercial guy, like I was saying, you're happy with it being at a lower level where there's higher annual production that you can catch. A recreational guy, they want more fish in the water. So that tension is still there. Uh, but also, this is a range-wide population. I mean, uh, uh, the, the, the range of this population is wide. It's Maine to North Carolina. They move around. And as part of that decline, we had range constriction. So there weren't as many fish at the outer edges of the range. And that's what mm -hmm. happens when a fish population goes down. It doesn't, it doesn't cover as much ground. So up in New England, especially in the Gulf of Maine, they, they were without fish for a number of years. And they were kicking and screaming until finally uh, what they'd been saying was confirmed by the stock assessment a couple years ago. Uh, and that's when these cutbacks came into play. But now we're starting to see, keep our fingers crossed, we're starting to see that uh, stock, the spawning stock, start to go back up again, and they're starting to hear of fish coming into, into southern New England and I'm sure in, into the Gulf of Maine soon. I'll tell you, it is interesting how conservative we coastwide want to be about striped bass. Everybody loves striped bass and we, 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 we just can't catch them. We got to build them up. But we're not equally conservative on the fish they depend on for food. All right. We're going to make come, much sense. We're going to come back to that. Right. Uh, hang on one second. I got to let right. you catch your breath okay, here. Is it a commercial break or what? Yeah, it's a, no, it's a time for me to talk some. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm, I'm going to talk about you, so just settle down here. So the, you've talked about this organization called the Atlantic States Marine Fisheries Commission. I want to say this because we're, we're awfully proud of you, Bill Goldsboro. You've been a member of that on and off, mostly on, for two or three decades. They have given you not one award of high prestige, not two awards, but three. And the most prestigious was just awarded uh, as you start to move off into retirement. And we really are proud of that. And it's been an enormous achievement for sort of a citizen scientist member of that body. The Atlantic States Marine Fisheries Commission 
as you were getting into, is now deeply embroiled in the issue of menhaden, which are one of the primary food species for striped bass. I'm going to come back to that at the end. Let's talk just for a second. No, I better be more than a few seconds, a couple of minutes, about blue crabs and oysters. Let's start with blue crabs. Give us, a, and I mean quick, history of the blue crab population and the science and the management techniques that have been used and whether or not they're working. Boy, if you can do that in a few minutes, you're really special. Okay, so the one key thing that it took us a long time to learn and embrace here in Chesapeake is that we have one blue crab population baywide that's shared by the states, Maryland and Virginia. Um, the spawning takes place at the mouth of the bay. The larvae go out to the ocean and then they're swept back in by hopefully favorable winds and currents in early fall each year. And the, the amount, of, the, the degree to which the, those forces are favorable, the amount that gets swept back in determines how successful that year's reproduction was. Because of that, we have no control over that. Because of that, and because the blue crab um, is quick to mature, relatively speaking, and produces a lot of eggs. It's what they call very fecund. Because of those factors, scientists said for a long time that you really couldn't overfish the blue crab in Chesapeake Bay. Well, we proved that you could. <laughs> <laughs> they get from larval stage to to market size 18, 24 months? Am it could I right? be as much as a year. Could yeah, be as, as little, little as, as a year. year. Yeah. yeah, as little as a year, yeah. Uh, depending on what market you're talking about, especially peeler size, you know, it can be smaller. But so that's a prescription for vast fluctuations in overall population. That's right, especially if you have high harvest pressure. Uh, and so backtrack to the 80s. In the 1980s, we were just talking about rockfish, moratorium, all those cutbacks. Watermen can't catch them like they used to. Then we had an oyster die-off from disease in the mid-80s. So they can't oyster like they used to. So that's when we put the blue crab to the test. A whole lot more pressure went into blue crabs, especially the fall of the year when the mature females, we call them sooks, uh, are taking their migration down the bay in preparation for spawning down the mouth of the bay the following summer. Uh, so we got to where the crabbers uh, were following the sook run, even right up until Christmas. And, you know, they, they never did a lot of that uh, historically because there wasn't much market. For, they were going sooks. on to oysters. They went on to oystering normally in the early fall. And oysters um, were the biggest cash crop and then were surpassed by blue crabs. That's right. That's right. And now in Virginia, they had a traditional winter fishery using dredges, catching mostly those sooks. And that's where she crab soup comes from, that tradition in the lower bay. We don't really have that tradition in the upper bay. But, you know, that's a, that's a, a, a local cultural thing. Dredging female crabs that were hibernating in the mud. That's right. Mm -hmm. That's right. Uh, and so the increased pressure on crabs in the late 80s included the winter dredge fishery. The number of boats in that would traditionally have been 80 or 90, and it got to about 350 during that period. Uh, and the same thing happened with crab potting. Uh, lots more pots in the water for a much longer part of the year. So we really were testing crabs to see how resilient they were as a population. Uh, and interesting thing happened about that time, 1990, they started doing the winter dredge survey, the most powerful piece of data that we have for characterizing the blue crab population. And it's, it's become an, uh, in, uh, a standard, fantastic really. tool that we, yeah, yeah, we couldn't and do And it's been now. very accurate. Very in, accurate. As a predictor. So about 1995, five years into that survey, we saw 
uh, anybody could see, um, the, 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 the biomass of mature females, the spawning stock, uh, dropping, dropping off precipitously the first five years of that survey. is right at the time when all that increased pressure on them was occurring. Uh, and in mid-90s, 1995, um, we put out a public proposal to conserve crabs that involved a uh, sanctuary corridor down the middle of the bay to provide some protection for those migrating mature females. Uh, well, that caused an uproar. <laughs> we Don't didn't get mess very with far. my crabs, you know. Um, so the, a lot of things ensued, a lot of debates, a lot of forums, a lot of wringing of hands. And some no, people would call for a total moratorium on catch. Some people did, yeah. But for the most part, uh, we didn't make too many friends in the Waterman's community right then. Right. Um, but we were really uh, doing what we do, and that's looking out for the longer term and, and really uh, for, for their good interest in the long term. I mean, that's the point. Um, we're trying to save the bay to have it be healthy and be able to support productive fisheries is, to me, the, the first, first objective. Um, but that requires a little longer term outlook than, than your average commercial fisherman can afford to have. You know, they're worried about their next boat payment. So that, that's been our tension there all along, all well and good. Uh, so we, we, we had a lot of hand wringing in the late 90s trying to figure out what was going on with crabs. Um, our initial reaction from the scientific community was, well, five years isn't enough data to really describe a trend in that survey, and we need more data, we need more analyses. And uh, NOAA finally uh, organized a stock assessment, the first one ever, and it was really hard for them to do. Uh, um, a crustacean is very different from a fin fish in terms of life history and how you model it and all that. NOAA um, being the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, a right. federal agency. Avoid those acronyms, right. sorry. <laughs> <laughs> and the states were part of that, mm -hmm. too, I mean, to, to be fair. Um, so we, we as a society became more... Um, interested in trying to, as we did with rockfish, manage the blue crab fishery. Right. And the result has been? Well, so there were fits and starts on that. We had uh, a wonderful thing called the Bi-State Blue Crab Committee organized by the Bay Commission that, that uh, brought scientists and stakeholders and decision makers together for a number of years and was right on the precipice of of the kind of solution that is now in place, and then it got disbanded because everyone got cold feet, all the, all the decision makers. A lot of politics, a lot of pressure. Uh, and that was about 01, I think, 02, somewhere around there. Well, uh, so it languished there for a few more years, and the data kept mounting that crabs are in trouble, they're at low level, this is real. Uh, and you know, we ended up having maybe, I don't know, 15 years at that level late 90s into 2000s. At the same time, water quality pressure, underwater grass that's pressure, right. other things Habitat. contributing. Yep. And th yeah, that, that's when other pressures on a population that might not be significant when things are in better shape can become significant, right. like lack of habitat, like predation, like if rockfish don't have enough of their preferred food, then they might feed more on crabs. Since there isn't enough grass, it's easier for them to find crabs and feed on them. So there are those kinds of things uh, come into play as well. Um, so then what happened was that the political winds lined up, and in 08 we had governors of both states that saw eye to eye on this and, and accepted this science and realized we had to do things differently and manage this population consistent with what the science said. 
and that was Governor Kane in Virginia and O'Malley in Maryland. Uh, and they, uh, they, they implemented, their, they, they in, allowed their agencies to implement a science-based management regime, which just like rockfish, establish targets and thresholds for the population and the fishery. And, and the, the population doubled within two years. Now it's been variable since, but it's, it's on a better track now. It's got uh, scientific guardrails around it. Uh, and I feel pretty good about where we are with blue crabs. Mm -hmm. um, let's come, sh sh should we touch on oysters briefly? Sure. Go ahead. <clears throat> oysters have uh, been beaten down pretty dramatically. Right. And now we're starting to see, again, from many of the same processes, a resurgence. Right. So um, really, I, I drop back to the 1980s as a turning point, big die off in the 80s. Uh, and um, uh, that that led to a lot of things. It led to the Chesapeake Bay Foundation calling for a moratorium in 1991 in our book, Turning the Tide. Uh, and that caused an uproar, too. <laughs> we didn't get very far with that one. <laughs> I didn't get too far. Even a lot of scientists opposed us. And the, and the reason we did, there, there were two things. One was in 1988, Dr. Roger Newell from University of Maryland came up with an estimate that the oyster population was down to 1% of what it had been in the year 1870. That was the baseline year he had. He was using catch data to backcast, if you will. Uh, the other thing that happened was it became obvious from the accumulating science that oysters were critical for the health of the bay. They weren't just important to have uh, for dinner. They were important to have to maintain the ecosystem because they're filter feeders. They, 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 they remove the nitrogen pollution from the water and they build reefs that are important habitat. Uh, and they, they, and when, they, when you allow them to do that, they spawn much more prodigiously. So it's, it's all good for the system if you have a healthy oyster uh, resource. So that stimulated movement in the direction of uh, oyster restoration in the early 90s. Dr. Jim Wesson was hired at the Virginia Marine Resources Commission. He had been a waterman when I first met him. He was president of the local Watermen association, but he had a PhD in wildlife biology. But he came in and he started doing things differently. He built three-dimensional reefs, th shell power reefs throughout Tidewater, Virginia. That was unheard of. So we worked with Jim and supported him a lot, and we planted a lot of oysters we produced on his reefs. Um, but he didn't get a lot of love in, in, in his own watermen's community either. There, there's, there's anything, anytime you change things up, they're, they're, <laughs> people are suspicious. Um, and then in uh, 93, Maryland held the Oyster Roundtable. Uh, credit again to Dr. Tory Brown. Uh, that was a fantastic uh, effort at bringing all the stakeholders and decision makers around the table again. Uh, these don't always work. They, I can tell you some that failed as well, but this one really was done well with good facilitation, worked hard for a whole year and came up with a game plan that served as a basis for Maryland's approach for a number of years. And it was the start of this thing we call the Oyster Recovery Partnership, a nonprofit uh, that we were part of. Um, that continues to this day to be the engine for the restoration work in, in Maryland, uh, working with the University of Maryland Oyster Hatchery at Horn Point. Um, so we started moving in the direction of oyster restoration, and that was really good. Um, but still, the scientists couldn't agree on whether you should do it this way or that way. And, and Congress was like, well, if the scientists can't agree, what do you want us to do? And so finally, 
Chesapeake Research Consortium got all the Bay's oyster scientists in one room for a couple days, and they, they wouldn't let them out, uh, only send in food and, uh, you know, water, and, uh, until they came up with a consensus on what the, what the formula should be for recovery. And they did. Lo and behold, in 1999, came out with a report. Uh, and we were able to take that to Congress and say, hey, look, First of all, here's all this documentation about how important this is, economically and ecologically. Second of all, here's the formula the scientists say we need to do. So time for you boys to step up with a little funding. And guess what? It worked. <laughs> and Senator Barbara Mikulski from Maryland was right. a great champion of that right. funding for many years. Yeah, and it continues now, and it's critical. So we're seeing oyster restoration succeed. We're also seeing a vibrant aquaculture industry for oysters, which helps put more critters in the water. They're the same species. Yep. We overcame an effort to bring in a foreign species, which people thought might be a silver bullet, and fortunately science prevailed there. Yep. So all the effort now has gone into restoring, supporting, uh, believing in the native oyster. And maybe Chesapeake Bay is one of the few places in the world, am I right, which has maintained uh, 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 an emphasis or a purity of the native oyster? When you think of France, when you think of the Northwest, all of those great growing areas, oyster growing areas, have other species, don't they? Non-native species. Uh, that's right. I'm not sure I'd be. I could say worldwide. Certainly, all down on the Gulf Coast, it's still the native. Gulf Coast native is still oyster, native as well, which is a very similar. It's, it's the same the same, same oyster as, yeah. as the Chesapeake. Yeah. yeah. Um, but that's right. There, it, it, there's a, a real tendency to jump at a silver bullet mm -hmm. when things get tough, uh, and when you're talking about bringing in a non-native species as your silver bullet, you're taking on a huge amount of risk huge. too because they can become invasive and really cause havoc in your ecosystem. Okay. Now, with the relatively little remaining time, we're going to come back full circle to rockfish, striped bass, and the Atlantic States Marine Fisheries Commission through the lens of the most important fish in the diet of striped bass, menhaden. Not a fish that's consumed by humans, but rather an industrial fish that's used for a number of different processes, including feed for animals. And one company, Omega Protein, based in Houston, takes the vast majority of those fish caught from Maine to North Carolina again, maybe well, even down to Florida. Yeah. 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 And the Atlantic States Marine Fisheries Commission has been evaluating and deciding how much fish can be taken. Give us the headlines there. Okay, yeah, so uh, omega protein is the last reduction plant. That's the, the, the process, the industrial process that cooks them down to oil and meal and markets them as commodities. And, so they're, and that's, they're taken out of the body of water in Massive quantities. Massive ton right. tons of fish. Right, right. And hundreds then of tons. Hundreds of tons and then reduced to their basic elements so they can be used in everything from cosmetics to health supplements to animal feed. And that's done that's in right. Reedville, Virginia. The Reedville, only, Virginia. The only plant left, there, there used to be uh, dozens of plants up and down the coast. According to one source, there actually were uh, almost 100 in the 1880s. Uh, and there was a period of time in the late 19th century after the decline of whaling and before widespread use of electricity when menhaden oil was the primary lighting oil mm -hmm. on the East Coast. So mm -hmm. that's part of that story. 
Um, but ever since then, there have been a lot of changes in the industry, and it's constricted down to where there's only one plant left. Uh, and so um, that, that operation takes 80% of the catch on the whole East Coast. And that ranks typically on an annual basis in the top five by weight of fisheries in the whole United States. Including Alaska. Including Alaska. So you're talking, talking about, about a lot of fish. A substantial fishery. A lot That's of right. food for everything from striped bass to whales. Exactly. Uh, marine birds, ospreys, eagles, loons, gannets, pelicans. Yeah. Um, and so, but, but that's the piece of it that didn't get recognized very early on, that we're still trying to now get, get more love for um, and making progress. Understand the ecological roles of Menhaden. That's right. It, it, almost the same battle you had to fight in terms of the ecological role of oysters exactly. in addition to the actual meat product. Exactly. And it's hard to believe now that we know how valuable Menhaden is to the ecosystem as the base of the food chain, a filter feeder in its own right, but, but that, that takes that energy and funnels it up through the food chain in such important pathways. Uh, it's hard to believe, knowing all that, that up until 2013, there was no limit on the amount of Menhaden you could take on the whole East Coast. So that was the big, big improvement that we were all able collectively to put in place through the Atlantic States Marine Fisheries Commission. Uh, starting in 2013, it was a quota, a limit on the total catch coastwide. You and your conservation colleagues from many different organizations That's right. pushed very hard and got that first limit in December, was it? Of well, December 2012. 2012. It was when a new yep. management plan was put in place, Amendment 2. Hmm. Uh, yeah, uh, and that, that, was, that was huge. And, you know, we had made incremental steps up to then. In Amendment 1, the previous plan was adopted in 2001. We had successfully gotten an official management objective in the plan that said we were going to uh, maintain Manhattan's ecological role. But ASMFC hadn't figured out how to do that. It really is cutting edge, was at the time, especially cutting edge stuff. So we still haven't fully done that yet, but we're making a lot of progress. So where we are today is we got the limits in place. You and others got the ASMFC put the limits in place in 2013. The population by weight, not necessarily by number of fish, has started to increase. And there's been pressure on them to raise the quota, which they have done. And they're waiting now for the results of the ecological study to see if that will affect the quota and maybe bring it back down. Is that overly so, simplistic? No, that, that's, that's pretty accurate. Um, it may or may not need to bring it down, but the ecological study you're talking about is key. And, and that takes us back to the reference point thing, the target and threshold by which most of these fisheries are managed these days, scientifically based targets and thresholds. Um, but for most fisheries, it's, it's, it's targets and thresholds developed just as if that one population, that one species was in a vacuum. Existed by itself. But yeah. Menhaden is so important and so many inter, interconnections with so many other species and aspects of the ecosystem that that's not enough. You have to think of it in terms of maintaining all those interdependencies. Inter, uh, uh, and we call that ecosystem-based fisheries management. Again, cutting-edge stuff. Um, and where we are right now is we have a target and threshold in place for Menhaden that looks at it in a vacuum. And the ecological study you're referring to is the effort to try and change those targets, that target and threshold to be 
what we call ecological reference points, things that would not just look at the menhaden in a vacuum, but look at them and all their interactions. To layer in other criteria to the decision-making process that uh, recognizes and takes into consideration the ecological benefits. That's right. That's right. And, and, and that, that, when will that decision be made? That's, that's to take, uh, well, to be implemented for the 2018 fishing season. So right now they're starting the process. It's developing a whole new management plan, Amendment 3 in this case, um, and, and the development of the ecological reference points and the implementation of them for 2018 is what most fisheries conservation groups, us and all our partners up and down the coast, are focused on right now. And it's all taken place, again, at the Atlantic States Marine Fisheries Commission. How can individuals who may want to have their voices heard get engaged? Atlantic States Marine Fisheries Commission have a website? Sure, Would that yeah. be where you'd go? Yep. Or go, to their, go to their website, asmfc.org. You can find a lot of information on ours as well. Uh, on our website as well, cbf.org. Yep, yep. Um, and you can sign up for uh, email notices at ASMFC on a given species and, and be kept, uh, you know, kept apprised of what's going on. Um, but also, you can uh, hook up with any number of fishery conservation groups, CBF included, uh, that uh, is engaged in this and working together in a coastwide coalition uh, to try and get this good ecosystem-based management of Menhaden in place. And no matter what state you live in, if you're in... Even Pennsylvania is part of the Atlantic States Marine Fisheries Commission. That's right. So Pennsylvania, Maryland, Virginia, and then up and down the coast, each state has a single vote. That's correct. And so uh, everybody can uh, make their views known as to how they think uh, Atl uh, uh, Menhaden should be managed, whether it should be more conservative or more liberal. Uh, and right. uh, that's something that is really going to play out in the next several months. That's right. Uh, the next year altogether, uh, or 10 months or so. And so each state has ten com or three commissioners that together caucus and produce their vote. Their vote. Uh, and I would encourage anybody to look into their state's commissioners, and you can find them all listed on asmfc.org uh, and get in touch with them. Tell them you're interested. Tell them what, you know, that you want uh, Menhaden to be ecologically managed. And you mentioned Pennsylvania. They've been a great partner. The Pennsylvania commissioners to ASMFC, they, they see that and they know it's important. So we've been working a lot with them. They like to eat rockfish in Pennsylvania well, and exactly. catch them as well. Exactly. Uh, Bill, this has been fascinating. And um, I just want to end by saying, uh, as a partner with you here at the Chesapeake Bay Foundation for decades, the respect and admiration your fellow members of CBF staff have for you and those people you've worked with and touched up and down the Bay and up and down the Atlantic State's coast is just enormous. So you've got to feel very proud of what you've accomplished over these many years. Uh, and um, we, we can't thank you enough. Um, I, I hope you enjoy retirement. I know you're going to keep your hand in fisheries management. Uh, we hope you'll not be a stranger to the Chesapeake Bay Foundation. Uh, maybe we can get you to write some pieces from time to time, maybe even do another podcast. But uh, Bill Goldsborough, anything else you'd like to say before we sign off? Um, I'd just like to uh, ask you and all my colleagues at CBF to uh, keep the dream alive. That's a good, that's a, a nice coda. So for Bill Goldsboro, uh, 
on the brink of retirement and Will Baker, president of the Chesapeake Bay Foundation. This is our continuing series, podcast series, every two weeks. Uh, be sure to tune in. You can see, you can listen to past podcasts uh, by going on to our website at cbf.org and get a lot of other information as well. Thank you, Bill. Thank you. Thank you.